Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. I hope this episode provides you with some escapism and some respite from these dark days Daylight-wise and news-wise, things are getting more difficult again, so I hope wherever you're listening to this, you're safe and well and that the people you care and love about are as well. Today's guest is Geoffrey Archer. I've been reading Geoffrey Archer's books since I can remember. Um, first Among Equals was the first one I read. When I first got into politics, it was great to read a really exciting novel about um, political rivalry uh, and political careers. Then Cain and Abel, The Prodigal Daughter, um, great political novels. And loved as well, not a penny more, not a penny less. And have read all the books I talk about in this podcast. I mean, I've been reading them for years and I've always enjoyed them. Wherever Jeffrey's career uh, and life took him, I, I've always enjoyed his books. So it was a, a real pleasure to be able to talk to him about those books. But also, not just about the books and his insight into writing them and the detail he goes into, uh, about his politics as well and about his career in politics, his relationship with Margaret Thatcher and with John Major, uh, the, the events that he witnessed, and his take on contemporary political issues, Brexit, the leadership of Boris Johnson, um, the American election uh, and his uh, his assessment of Biden and of Trump. I also always wanted to ask him about his shepherd's pie and champagne parties. Uh, he gives us an insight into those. And also, if you're looking for tips on uh, you know food, wine and culture, there are quite a few in this podcast um, that Jeffrey gives us. So I began by asking Jeffrey whether I should address him, as I always ask people with, with knighthoods or with peerages, whether I should address him as Lord Archer or as Jeffrey. Uh, should I? I, I mean, Jeffrey, I should... Jeffrey, Jeffrey, Jeffrey. Have you always yeah. preferred to be called Jeffrey or, or was there what, always. Was a period where is it okay? No, just for famous people like you. <laughs> Well, let's start off by talking about your books. You've got a new one out um, 
called Hidden in Plain Sight, which is absolutely superb. And we'll talk about that in some detail. But the first book of yours that I read was First Among Equals. And oh. what, what really struck me about that, and I must have read it when I was about 12 or 13, and maybe I'm misremembering this and perhaps put me right. I felt, as a young boy reading that, that actually you had more sympathy with the Labour characters in the book than the Tory ones. I've always been very middle of the road. I've always been what one would call a left wing uh, Tory. Margaret Thatcher would have described me as wet. Uh, and if we hadn't got on so well, she'd have probably drowned me. But I think you're quite right. And indeed, in the end, oh, no, we mustn't say what happens in the end. Uh, first Among Equals was many years ago. The challenge, Matt, was to make sure the reader didn't know I was a supporter of the Conservative Party. They had to read the book and think, well, you can't really tell which side he supports. Which is, so it, I'm delighted to hear you say just that. Uh, because what would have been disastrous if someone had written, this is no more than... Uh, no more than a polemic for the Conservative Party. That would have been disastrous. And do you try, I mean, there's, there's a bit in this book early on where some of the characters discuss drugs and social attitudes to it, and we explore each character through their, through their opinion on, on narcotics. And obviously that section of the book is set in the 1980s. But do you sometimes explore your own politics through the fiction that you write? Avoid it if I can. Uh, you mustn't impose on the reader, man. The reader mustn't feel. I mean, the problem uh, Sir David Hare is having at the moment with his most recent play, if you read the crits, is the crits keep saying you can't miss the fact that he's a left-wing socialist and his prejudice. Well, I don't want that when people read my books. I want people to say, I wonder which party he belonged to. That might have been true early on, but of course everyone knows your politics now. So does that, does, does that change the way you approach well, you say discussing that, social issues in these books? You're quite right at one level, but you're only right because you're a pathetic introvert person. You must remember that I'm published in 41 languages and 137 countries, and about 136 of those countries I have no idea I have any interest in politics at all. They only read the books, Matt. But they must come on, people Google, they, people Google you, they'll go, oh, this guy was a Tory politician. Well, they would in, they would in England, but you, you uh, and of course I sit in the House of Lords, but they don't abroad, they read the books. If you read the emails from abroad, Matt, they're, they're, that's not what interests them. They won't talk about the books. And do you, I wonder sometimes if it, if it gives you a license, actually, to, to put opposing views in, in characters' mouths and whether that's quite a pleasurable thing to do is that to sometimes get down on the page through a character you might be fond of um, saying things that you might not necessarily agree with. Yes, I mean, again, you're pushing the political line in a rather boring way, so clearly <laughs> you're about to stand for Parliament or you're about to make some great political statement, which is really rather boring. So I will try and answer that really rather boring question by saying, no, a, read, a writer must write the story and get on with the story and not impose themselves on, on, the, on, on the reader. Now, if you and I are gonna have a discussion on politics, either Trump and Biden, the current situation with Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, so be it. I'll have an opinion and I'll give it, but don't get it muddled up with my box. Well, it's hard when some of your books do contain politicians, like First Among Equals, Cain and Abel and The Prodigal Daughter do. 
Yes, you're quite right. I, I, uh, you're quite right. I use and say to all young authors too, write what you know about. And I have a love of art, so you see a lot of that. Uh, a passion for politics, uh, uh, big business, uh, charity auctions, whatever it might be, they get in because it's part of my life. So I say to authors, and they're writing their first book or just, if you know something about a particular subject, let your reader know. They'll know you know. I read somewhere that you were you went to quite some detail. I can't remember what big book this was for, but measured in actual steps the walk from the plane to the arrivals lounge for one of your novels. I don't know if that rings a bell. Well, I've discovered over the years, I take the bite of Kit Kat, which was a mistake. I've discovered over the years, because you ended your question far too quickly. I've discovered over the years, Matt, that if you get something wrong, and about 100 yards from first class to the flight, and it's 400 yards, you then get a hundred emails saying, dear Jeffrey, you don't do your research properly. I mean, I've just come out of first class in Bonga and it took me three minutes and it was 400 yards. It isn't 100 yards and doesn't take one and a half minutes. So you've got to be, I'm, I'm pretty meticulous on that, but still make mistakes. You still get emails saying, no, you're wrong, Jeffrey. In fact, I made a mistake on television yesterday, which was corrected by a reader, one of my readers within minutes. I said that uh, President Trump if he loses, the big distinction between the United States and any other country on earth is that he remains in power until February the 2nd. Well, he does remain in power, but he doesn't. He remains in power until January the 20th. So I got that wrong. And whoop, in came an immediate, no, Jeffrey, it's 20, I'm very grateful for that because I'll be talking American politics a lot over the next few days. So not only was it useful that he corrected it, uh, but I now know that it's uh, November the 3rd, when the election is, right through to uh, January the 20th. He remains the president with executive powers. So I was saying it on this particular television program, what is going to happen in the next six weeks that we hadn't even thought about? In reference to a question, could you have written the story of coronavirus and Donald Trump? No, I said, it would have been out of date by the day of publication. Have you ever had the idea for a novel based around a, a sort of global pandemic or, or a no. dysfunctional president? No, no, neither. Uh, it would have been fascinating if I had watched the Bill Gates lecture when it was done, whenever it was, two, three, four years ago. I'd watched it and thought, my God, that's a story. But of course, most of us saw the Bill Gates lecture in the last few weeks or the last few months, whereas in fact it was delivered at the university um, two or three years ago. So he was way ahead of his time. And there's a lady in, in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh who uh, can prove, because it's all on paper, that she predicted everything that's happening. And so if she'd come to me and said, I've got a novel for you. Now, would I have had the courage to believe her? That's the other thing you have to think about. Would I have said, well, it's a wonderful idea. How very interesting. Um, and I might have made it in through the Chinese doing it purposely in order to make themselves a world economic power. So I might have made changes. But uh, let's say we come out today's publication date. And uh, if I'd come out today, if I'd been doing Trump, I could be really out of date by next week. Yeah. Really out of date. Because I'm predicting a Biden win, a quite comfortable Biden win. What I can't predict is what Trump will get up to 
in the next six weeks. That's no author can predict it. He is so unpredictable. And would you like a Biden victory? Yes, over the last 60 years, I would have voted for four Democrats and four Republicans. I'm very split. I mean, the Democrats are not a left-wing party compared to the Labour Party. And the Republicans are not, Republicans are a right-wing party compared to the Conservative Party. We're much, both, both parties in our country are nearer the centre than either of those. There's a much bigger difference between the two. I would have voted for Kennedy. Uh, I would have voted for Romney against Obama, funnily enough. I, I thought the country needed sorting out financially, and I'm a great admirer of Obama. And now I see him doing his stump talk in the last couple of days. I wish he was still around. But I would have voted for Reagan. So it, it, it swaps around for me. I actually think the person's important. Actually look at the person, consider the person. And I think that's important. What we've got, sadly, in my view, and I could be 100% wrong, is you've got the choice of voting for Trump or not voting for Trump. If you don't vote for Trump, then you vote for Biden. And I'm a, I couldn't vote for Trump then. And what about in 1992 then? Would you, have voted for, would you have voted for Bush Senior or for Bill Clinton? I think uh, an admirer of Bush Senior, a very dignified gentleman, an old-fashioned politician, more a civil servant. And gosh, wouldn't we like to have someone like that in charge of America at the moment, who brings that sort of integrity and dignity? Uh, may I remind you of a sentence delivered, and I wish I could remember the senator who delivered it. At his funeral, his closest friend, a very distinguished senator, had hard times. And he was talking about the way George Bush Sr. stood by him during those hard times, invited him to the White House, invited him to major events, so the world could see that he, George Bush, stood by his friend. And I thought that was wonderful. And then he delivered a line about George Bush, and sometimes for authors like me, particularly politicians who love public speaking, you'll see a single line that you, you want to stand up and applaud. And he said, George, he said, was a humble man. But then when you're a humble man, you can travel on the highway with no fear of speed. Beautiful, beautiful. Was that beautiful. James Baker? No, no. James Baker was uh, was he was he chief was he Secretary of State and head of no great admirer of James Baker. Uh, again, a class individual. I, it, 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 I presume Mr. Baker's not alive, but if he were, he would be horrified by what was going on now because. He felt, again, he felt there should be a dignity in politics, and there certainly isn't at the moment. And what about, what about domestic politics here then? I, I, I've, in advance of interviewing you, I, I referenced my um, political library and, and looked you up in Margaret Thatcher's autobiography, and this is how she describes you. She says, Jeffrey was the extrovert's extrovert. He had prodigious energy. He was the most popular speaker the party has ever had. And I thought, actually, that's something that people would often say about Boris Johnson is that, you know, that's, that, that was kind of his role. He was the motivator of the party. Um, 
Is that where the similarity ends? Well, it's very kind of Margaret to say that I was the most popular speaker in the country. Very kind of her. And, uh, but we did, uh, you know, we were friends. So uh, there, you, you have to, I'm hesitating because you have to take into her opinion how much was the fact that we were friends. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a kind thing to say. Uh, without taking every headline in every paper tomorrow, uh, without wishing to or without, I don't think Boris would have been in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. And you, I mean, obviously, they weren't, they, weren't, they weren't a natural, they weren't a natural bind. But knowing that this next sentence won't be printed when that will be taken out of context, then you'll laugh and I'll laugh about it. Uh, he's a brilliant campaigner. Uh, he won London against the odds. He won Brexit against the odds. And he got an 80 majority. You're talking about one hell of a campaigner. So anyone who is rude enough to take that sentence out, uh, they are also typical of the generation we now live in where you're misquoted. I, I guess the similarity I was going for was that you were always seen as the kind of party motivator. You know, it was you that mm. would energize the party and that was his role. You know, when I was working for Labour back in the day, whatever I thought of John Prescott, he was the one at the party conference that would kind of send people away with a spring in their step. And that was kind of your role for a while as deputy chairman. You were the kind of, you were the dynamo at the heart of the party. Yes, I enjoyed that. I loved elections. Elections were the best fun of all because you, you spent the whole day with the prime minister, whichever, whether it was uh, John Major or Margaret Thatcher. And, and you, uh, you saw what was going on. Uh, and that was terrific fun. I mean, that was 19 hours every day uh, under tremendous pressure. Uh, the slightest thing came up, the Prime Minister had to deal with it. Mind you, that's true in the Prime Minister's life uh, without an election. But during an election, it's kind of highlighted. It kind of, six things can come up in a day during an election, whereas one thing or two things will come up in, in a day when you're in the middle term. So, yeah, that one of the, the four elections I worked in at that level, uh, were four of the most exciting times in my life. And being that close to two prime ministers in particular, did it make you want to do the job or did it put you off? I would love to have done the job. But I'm bound to say, well, I wouldn't anywhere near it, but I'm bound to say that uh, it's not a very attractive job at the moment for two reasons. One, this modern thing with Facebook and tweets and Twitters and whatever it is. So a thousand opinions come out a moment after you've delivered the sentence. Uh, that's, that doesn't help. I was telling someone yesterday that when I first entered the house at the age of 29, Amory, a Minister of State in Defence, was asked the question by his opposite member on the Labour Party, in the Labour Party. And, um, he got up and said, I, I, I apologise to the right honourable gentleman, I don't have the answer to this. Uh, what I will do is go away and get you a full and answer, and I uh, will send you a letter within the next two days. And the Labour man got up and said, that's very kind, uh, I thank the honourable gentleman, and I look forward to receiving his letter. Today everybody would be going, resign, resign, you're meant to know everything, resign. And it's pathetic, you can't know 
everything. And you sometimes need to go away and think and consider. Uh, so I came into, I wouldn't say politics was gentle when I entered it, but it was well-mannered. And now I, I, I see that you're on Twitter. I, I guess you engage with it in a different way as an author is that it's probably a helpful promotional tool for you to let people know when books are out and when you're doing events and things. I mean, do you engage with people much on there? Oh yes, quite a bit. If they come back, particularly on emails, when they write to me about things, either political matters in the House of Lords or about the book, if they say they feel X, Y, and Z, I write back to them. Or you get those sweet ones where uh, got got one this morning just before I came on from a gentleman saying his father was about to be 90. Would I please sign his book for him? He's been a fan for 40 years. Of course, those are very touching. It's a lovely way to start the day. And I think they, I think when I read these emails, I think they think I'm not even reading them. But I can assure you, I read every single one and reply to everything. So when someone once said to me, well, I wrote for you and you didn't reply, I knew he was making it up because we replied to everything. And with the House of Lords, there's been a real focus on it, particularly around Brexit, where the House of Lords became, for the first time that I can remember, a source of ire for the Conservative Party who, in my life, uh, have always defended uh, the House of Lords and the way it's constructed. And then once the House of Lords was being perhaps slightly mischievous or indeed fulfilling its constitutional role in uh, frustrating elements of the House of Commons that it disagreed with, there seemed to be from the right and from the Daily Mail and elements of the Telegraph really attacking the House of Lords. How did you feel well, during that period? Big. And as a member of the House, how did that feel? It's too big. It's much too big. We ought to be about 400. We can't even sit down in the chamber if we all go there. Uh, so it's slightly mad at that level. And I have uh, take the Shirley Williams attitude. that in, in the parliament in which you become 80, you should go. So at the end of this parliament, I will be 83. And that's an honorable time to say, I'm not going to come in and give my opinion on everything. You could take 200 out and it would still be back. Douglas Hurd said to me about a year ago, I, I couldn't even, I was due to make a speech and couldn't even find a place to sit down. Well, I mean, that's madness. A former, great former foreign secretary, whichever party you support, a great former foreign secretary, and a man who has something to offer compared to the rest of us known. And he couldn't find a seat. And would you change the constitution of the House of Lords? Would you have an elected element or a wholly elected element? I'm coming round to an elected element. Only because the people entering the House now, most of them, I say most of them, that's not fair, 50% not interested in politics and will never make a speech in their life. If we're going to have an upper chamber and a lower chamber, surely those speaking and passing bills and legislation in the upper chamber should actually be interested in politics and the governing of the country. Uh, though, of course, I would also, I would give peerages to people who'd achieve great things. The day I entered the House of Lords 25 years ago, I entered with uh, Yehudi Menuhin. Well, many people wouldn't know who Yehudi Menuhin is, was, is, was. But he was one of the greatest violinists the world has known. And his school was one where the greatest violinists wanted to be. 
So I sat down next to him and I thought that was a great honor for me. And I said, uh, will you be coming back, sir? He said, no, Geoffrey, uh, I, I will be getting on with my daily life. Now, that's what one calls a peerage of the great and the good, and that's honorable. And I'm all in favor of that. He was being made a lord to let the world know what he'd achieved. What I'm against is, I, I'm not happy about political appointments when they don't actually join in. And as a cricket fan then, how do you feel about Ian Botham being in the House of Lords? Is that, is that a well, positive he, move or a negative move? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say positive because I was honoured to be one of his sponsors. Uh, uh, when he took his seat, I had to do it a uh, hundred miles away, but uh, and I've known Ian all my life, so it's an unfair question in that way, in the sense that he was in the Somerset team, uh, uh, or so I've known him. What is he, sixty-four, sixty-five now? I've known him for fifty years, and uh, arguably the greatest all-rounder Britain has ever produced. But there's another side to him. Hell of a charity. And his work for leukemia is absolutely amazing. And the millions he's raised. And he does have political opinions, unlike some. He and I uh, have come to fisticuffs, uh, and uh, I ran away over Brexit because he, he's a very strong uh, get out. I was a Remainer. Not actual so, uh, fisticuffs. I I, well, I, you know, you don't know, oh, you're so young, poor thing. I feel sorry for you. I think you've got another 40 years. Good God, poor man. Oh, I'd no, settled for 40. No, I, I remember <laughs> my best Ian story was uh, I went up to Durham to see a test match and um, sat very, very sat next to Ruth's father. It was fun. I watched the day I watched, I sat next to Ruth's father and mother when they were terrific And that we had dinner in the evening with Ian. And Ian had five bottles of wine on front of him, deciding which one wine for the night. He really does know his wine. And, and Kathy said, now you've got to get Jeffrey home by 10 o'clock. So Ian looked a bit shocked. Because it was dirty old coming up nine. Jeffrey goes to bed at 10 o'clock. Now, Ian, you will take him home. Ah, well, Ian, you will take him home at quarter to 10. Ah, well, you will. <laughs> and God oh, bless him, he took me home at quarter to 10. What I truly admire about Ian, he can stick up till two or three in the morning and then go and score a century. <laughs> that was part of him, or go and do the opening bowling for England, having drunk a bottle of brandy. I don't know how he does it. He is literally an ox. Literally. He is a walking ox, and I love him. Well, I can see why you wouldn't want to get into a fist fight with him then. If he's as strong as an ox, that would be uh, he's a, a bad guy. idea. He, I would say about him and Flintoff, who's another lovely human. I've done auctions for him in Manchester, and he's a lovely human being. But what I say about both of those men, and I suppose it ben applies... Stokes as well? Well, I don't know Stokes. I know both of them. But yes, it applies to them. If we were at war, all three of them would get the Victoria Cross. They'd see the enemy, and they'd say, hey, look, there's the enemy. Right. And off they go. Uh, and Because they're brave as lions, all three of them. So you, 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 perhaps best not to talk to Beefy about Brexit. I mean, did you, did you have the experience that so many people had that Brexit was quite frustrating when it came to discussing it with friends and family that, that disagreed? Well, my wife voted to come out. I voted to remain. Don't talk about friends. I was at breakfast with this woman who didn't 
Who wanted to come out? No, Mary felt very strongly. Well, actually, I think you both, to be fair, we were both just in the other camp. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I am a traditionalist and like to stay still. Uh, Mary felt we could do a lot better. And she was particularly, she was then chairman of Addenbrooke's, one of the great hospitals on earth. And people were flying in from all over Europe, parking themselves in Cambridge and saying, oh, I've fallen ill. They'd fallen ill the week before. They'd flown in to get to Addenbrooke's. That annoyed her. I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure, will have asked you this, and a lot of people speculate on what Churchill and what Thatcher would have thought of Brexit. You were very close to Margaret Thatcher. Do you, do you think she'd have voted to remain or leave? I never answered that question because I don't know. I would have asked her. I would have said, which way are you voting, Margaret? And she would have told me. Not only would she have told me, and there'd have been a 30-minute lecture that followed on why I should do exactly the same as her. And I would have sat there and taken it on the nose and gone home. Uh, so I can't answer your question, Matt, in case you want, I'm not having any, no intention of asking, answering your question, but I can say, hand on heart, I would have said, how are you going to vote, Margaret? Wham! And is it, do you think actually she could have gone either way then? Do you think there's a world in which you could see... You're pushing at something I refuse to answer, get lost. <laughs> you know, one of the joys of being 80, if I'd said that as a young politician, they'd have all said, oh, Matt. Poor little man over there trying so hard well and doing so bad. Hmm. Go on, get on with it, get off that question. Now, I can't answer it now because I don't know. Uh, he was around when we went into Europe. Played a major role, making changes within Europe that she felt strongly about. But I can't tell you which way she would have jumped. I, I've seen some very distinguished people giving an opinion on which way she would have jumped. Uh, but normally it was when they were promoting their own court. That's often the way. What do you think yeah, her yeah. assessment of, what do you think that the, her assessment of the current government would be and, and the way they've handled the negotiations with the EU? Well, are the negotiations on Brexit or are we moving on to, is that a general question? Try and, you know, at your age, you should be asking specific questions, pointed, able, so the person can answer them and not bluff and move on. The way you've worded it, I can bluff and move on. Try again. What would Margaret Thatcher's assessment of Boris Johnson's handling of the trade deal negotiations with the EU well, so far? Have you'd been? have to go back and say that he handled the cause of getting out brilliantly. He won. Cameron lost. Uh, and I was shocked by that. I got that wrong. I thought, uh, I thought we would remain in Europe. I thought the British people would stay still, but so I got that wrong. And there would be those who say he made the difference. So in itself, that was an amazing piece of uh, promotion. And he should, believing in that cause, he should be congratulated for having achieved it. Uh, the trade negotiations, how can we make a judgment? We don't know how silly of you, Matt. I mean, there you are saying, how's he doing? We don't know what, we don't know what he's got yet. We all want to give an opinion. Why don't you go into Parliament and do some work yourself, you layabout? We can't say how the... And we work with the Americans. We're not going to know until uh, either... Stop laughing. It's the first time a guest has ever called me a layabout. We're not going to know if Trump or Biden has won. And that's going to make a big difference because the Conservative Party are desperately trying to build a better relationship with Biden's team. 
uh, if Trump is re-elected, Boris already has a good relationship with the President of the United States. If, as I think, that Biden is going to be elected, then he has got to build very quickly a relationship because if we were to come out with no deal, which I think is unlikely, if we were to come out with no deal, he'd better get the other eggs in the basket lined up. Would it be unfair to say that the brinkmanship around walking away or giving the impression that we've That's walked away is, is that is that a factor? going on for a thousand it, years is that reminiscent of, of every, saying no, every no, deal. No. oh we can't talk to the other side they're not fair oh it's all over oh it's a oh we've suddenly found a settlement because we don't know what's going on in the background we don't know what civil servants are currently drafting they'll be drafting great sections of the bill and they'll already have been agreed Barney will have said Yes, 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 we've got to discuss that. Macron will say we've got to discuss that. Merkel will say we've got to discuss that. But great drafts of it will already be done. So don't be surprised when the day comes and they say, oh, so we've got the document. They've had it for weeks and they've been working on it for weeks. That's the way the civil servants work. They, they, they sweat away getting it all ready. So the politician can go right up to the tape making statements. Don't kid yourselves. Both. Uh, Europe and Britain have been working on the details now and the drafting for uh, a very long time. What about the implications of Europe for the Conservative Party? It's an issue that has always animated uh, elements of the party. Do you mourn as a former deputy chairman the, the current position of the government, which is seemingly to, to predominantly recruit from the, from the Leave side rather than the Remain side? Are we missing out on a broader government of the talents? Well, that's another thing I admired about Margaret. I mean, it was written. It was, it was hinted at in, in Charles Moore's brilliant biography that by the time she resigned, by the time she went, she only had three friends in the cabinet. Part of the reason she only had three friends in the cabinet, she selected the people she thought could do the job. So she surrounded herself with extremely able people. If you look back on that cabinet, it was a flipping impressive group of human beings. But only three of them actually walked into the room that night when she said, should I resign? Only three of them said, no, you shouldn't, Prime Minister. Right on. I still told her to go. Whereas if you elect, uh, if you appoint a cabinet, say, yes, of course, you're right. You're wonderful, Prime Minister. Yes, you're right, Prime Minister. Can I, is my car outside waiting to take me home? I say, you're wonderful, Prime Minister. That's not what you should be doing. You must pick the most able people you can lay your grubby hands on. There aren't enough able people in Parliament to leave them on the back benches. How hard was it for you being, being so close to Margaret Thatcher when her, her departure was becoming in, imminent and, and going through that leadership contest? How stressful was that for you personally? Agony. There's always an incident I remember. Funny how, I suppose it's an author incident. I think of it as an author. We were in the upstairs room at number 10 about two days ago. She knew she was going. About two days ago. And she was sitting in the corner of the sofa. I mean, quite lonely. And I sat down next to her and she touched my hand. You know, prime ministers don't touch you. <laughs> and she touched my hand. She was just, she was broken and she didn't understand it. So she said, what are you doing next, Jeffrey? And I said, uh, this was the moment I actually brought in quite a few biographies. She said, what are you doing next? So I said, I'm off to see the chancellor, right? asked to see me. Uh, would you give him my very best wishes and luck? 
I went down next door, because you can go from one side of Manning Street to the other, and went in to see John Major, then, of course, standing to be the leader. And John Major, sharp as a button, said, thank you, Geoffrey, but did she say, one, she'll be voting for me, and did she say, two, she'll be making it public? And I said, no, sir. She didn't say either. She said, will you give him my best wishes and wish him luck? Those were the words she said, and those were the words I delivered to John Major. You were with Major all day uh, on polling day in 1997, which again must have been such a different... I mean, after 1992, which was a phenomenal victory, one of the great victories of the modern era, to then in 1997 be present with a guy who was still personally popular, but whose party really oh, the, had run out the of The public life. loved him. He had a poll that said, who would you most like to have a, a pint in the pub? John Major always won it. No, that wasn't an easy election. And I remember Sir John Lacey rang me when I was in, oh, I think I was in Taunton. I was doing three seats, Worcester, Taunton, and Bristol, somewhere Bristol. And all three, uh, Sir John rang me up and said, Geoffrey, watch of you. What's happening in those three seats? I said, we're going to lose all three. And he said, oh my God, he said, you're the biggest optimist in the party. And you're telling me we're going to lose them? They changed the agenda the next day. I saw Michael Patillo on the steps of, uh, of uh, the BBC the next day. He said, I've been changed because of you. I said, what, what do you mean, Michael? He said, well, I was off to wherever he was off to. And, uh, but I've been given what I thought was a safe seat to go and talk in today. So we resigned to that. When I Prime Minister called for me, he said, what do you think, Jeffrey? I said, I, I think we'll lose by 120, sir. And he said, I'll settle for that right now. And of course, we lost by 170. Have you been back to Downing Street or to any of those places? You know, you, you were uh, omnipresent almost for a while in, the, in those years. You know, that was, that was the, your place of you work as well as Parliament. You don't. I saw Malcolm Rivkin the other day and he said, uh, and even don't forget, Malcolm was Foreign Secretary and a very distinguished Foreign Secretary and right in the centre. And he said, oh, I haven't been to Downing Street for years. Uh, so once it changes, frankly, you're out. And that's a good thing in politics. That's, you should have that in democracy. As you go, shove off. <laughs> <laughs> so who, who else do you still see from that era then? Malcolm Rifkind, any others? A Malcolm's friend. And there are a, and John Gummer and Michael Howard. There's a, there's a group we meet quite regularly who chat. I don't agree with any of them. They don't agree with me. So it's one long blooming chat all the time. <laughs> I, I think it was Dana when they were in power. Uh, so I see, yes, I see a lot of old friends, and I've got a lot of new friends, because when I stood for London, Sajid Javid and Nadim Zahawi, uh, and, and Pretty Platel, and uh, Toby Elwood, I had a, a great group who've gone on to great things in London. So I've got a, a young group who still keep me informed and give me their opinions. And of course, they're all, at the moment, under pressure and, and having a hard time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, as you say, you were the Tory candidate for London Mayor, um, and then it was Stephen Norris, and Ken Livingstone won that, that initial election and was re-elected. Is there a world, you know, is there a parallel universe out there where you become London mayor and, and things would have been different? I mean, how, how do you think London would have been different had you, had you oh, won the election? Parallel world out there. I'd have captained the England cricket team. I'd have been prime minister. Yes, I'd have won 100 metres at the Olympics. Of course there's a parallel world out there. None of it happened. <laughs> but do you think you'd have beaten Ken? Well, the 100 yards, certainly. He would never have seen me. No, I'd have been way. I'd have been over the tape catting, signing autographs while he was still coming down the track. Yes. Next silly question. Well, would you have brought in things like the congestion charge? I'm just trying to imagine how London would have been different under an Archer leadership. Well, you, we did have things we wanted to do differently. But don't forget that Eddie Lister was my deputy. And he's another man who's gone on to truly great things. He now sits in the House of Lords and is the Prime Minister's right hand. He's a very, very important man in modern politics. And I chose him because he'd been the leader at Wandsworth. A friend and I admired him greatly. But I, I, he'd run Wandsworth so brilliantly that I knew if I became mayor, I would have a local government chief, a local government man, who wouldn't let me make mistakes, who would bring to me his fast knowledge. So I was very proud when he agreed to be my deputy mayor. And when uh, Boris stole him to do the same job, I was full of admiration. What a clever thing to have done. That he is a very special guy. So uh, I suspect it wouldn't have been a great deal of difference because Eddie ran the show for Boris Johnson and Eddie would have run the show for me. I had other advantages. I've named those people who've gone on to the cabinet, gone on to Eldar. But also had Stephen Shakespeare as my chief of staff, who, uh, when I stood down, uh, invented YouGov. Yeah. Uh, and what a brilliant success that has been. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that Stephen Shakespeare would be in the cabinet now, probably Chancellor. He's a shrewd cookie, and he's taken that from nothing to a billion pound company. An amazing achievement. And uh, so I was lucky to have him as my chief of staff. Every, nobody says, I wonder what it would have been like with you as mayor, Jeffrey. But a lot of them say, my God, you had a wonderful team. So what I like picking, I like picking people. I like people around me who uh, will impress and will do a good job. And I can honestly say to you, uh, I had a, a brilliant team ready to run London. After that election, obviously, the, the, a, quite a difficult period in your life. And one of your most powerful books, three of your most powerful books, are your prison diaries. Um, Belmarsh in particular, which is just this incredible first-hand account of a member of the House of Lords, a distinguished um, politician, ending up in a Category A prison with some very dangerous people. <laughs> so many questions I want to ask you about. It. You know, the things that really stick with me from that book, and, and I read it the moment it came out, were... The, fa the, the rap lyrics that you could hear blaring out from a different wing, that really tickled me. And the fact that you It wouldn't have tickled you, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it wouldn't have slept. It was the one thing 
I've, I wrote about it yesterday, funnily enough, because the big shock is the prison diaries keep on selling. I thought they'd disappear. It's 20 years ago. I thought they would disappear and that would be forgotten. No, they keep selling. But I wrote the other day when someone asked me, you would like to sleep at night. It's impossible. There's loud music the entire night. And in the end, you learn to sleep with loud music the entire night. But I was only there for three weeks, so it wasn't exactly... Three, it, it, a lot of people who uh, would say, I'd like that three-week experience. I'd like to have gone through it. So, no, you wouldn't. Well, yes, you'd be a bit pathetic. Oh, I wouldn't. I, I think for most people, it's their worst nightmare. For an author, it was amazing. Were you ever scared? Yes, of course. There were some uh, very tough, evil people in there. But I quickly discovered they were scared of me in a totally different way. They thought if they said something stupid, everything around, around them would start laughing at them. So they, I didn't work it out until quite, it's in the book, I didn't work it out until quite late, that with the exception of the truly stupid, the others, um, quite a few of them, who are pretty bright, said, uh, wait a minute, don't take him on. <laughs> and uh, what they meant was, not with fists, because of course they'd have left me with one punch, uh, don't take him on with words. And that was interesting. It gave me a chance to talk to them and learn from them and gain true knowledge, which I hope has come out in those three books. And indeed in Prisoner of Earth and in uh, the 12 short stories as well. Uh, so yes, it was an amazing, this, this seems a long time ago now, 20 years ago, but it was an amazing experience. And I don't know if I'm right in saying this, but for me, I think that if I ever imagine going through that, it's the bit being in the Group 4 Securitas van on the way there. For some reason, well, if ever I imagine going to prison, that's the bit that I imagine is the worst bit. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, no, let's send you there for a couple of years. Move on. <laughs> but in, in one of the books, you, you, you um, publish in the picture section some of the artwork that some of the prisoners did, and it's fantastic. Prison. I, I got involved with a murderer from Glasgow who was clearly bright and uh, I beat him up mentally and he ended up with uh, six O levels, three A levels and a degree. There wasn't any doubt in my mind there's talent in prison. Often they come from bad family backgrounds and had genuinely bad starts. It made one realise the privileges I'd had in life and would continue to have after I came out and they wouldn't. Uh, oh yes, I, the art. You're quite right. The art department had two or three people. I thought, wait a minute. If you were in a graphics department in a major company or something like that, they would be jolly lucky to have you. Uh, but that isn't the way their world had gone, uh, and they weren't the only ones. One of the things that fascinated me was that you, you spent your money on Evian when you were in there. On what Evian? Yes. Rather yes. than chocolate or something else. Well, no, thank you very much. I wanted Evian. Well, <laughs> but that's always stayed with me. I thought, well, I'd just drink the tap water. I'd, I'd get used to the tap water and spend the money on food. Yes, sadly, the prisoners spent the money on cigarettes. And that was the reason they were always penniless. They took their whatever it was each week and just bought cigarettes. And God knows how many of them were also buying drugs. Have you stayed in touch with any of the people you were? I stayed in touch with two, and sadly, they both died. Uh, uh, Billy Little, who got his degree, and Fletch, who very sadly just let himself die. I went to see him regularly 
And on the last occasion I saw him, I said, now come on, I'll get you out, get you working, on the move. And he said, no, thank you, Jeffrey. I'm going to die and I won't. And he did. Do you ever reflect on that time? Does it give you nightmares? No, it does not. You give me nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just found them. I read Den Dennis McShane's account of his time inside as well. I, I think there's something, I don't know how it feels for you to hear this, but I think that there is something remarkable about hearing of prominent people. Going oh, yes, first time. Yeah, sure. It's, 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 they're really powerful things. But I got the sense with him that he kind of wasn't ready. He wrote the book and that was probably quite cathartic, but that he didn't really want to talk about it much after. I mean, do you feel the same? No, get on with life. And what about politics after that then? I mean, you know, um, you had some wonderful people visit you when you were inside, including oh, my, Barry Humphreys. Yeah, it's a great privilege that, I mean, they all try. I mean, the governor said to me, you're a menace, Archer. I said, why? He said, I've been Billy Connolly on this phone this morning saying he wants to come and see you on Saturday. And Billy Connolly? You'll, you'll have to wait three months. And Billy said, I won't be here in three months. Time. I'll be in America. And then he let him come in. Uh, yeah, Dame Edna came in and caused the riot. I mean, no, my friend stood by me. I had 2,000 Christmas cards first year. They had to fill the library with the Christmas cards. And friends stood by me. Friends do that when you're in trouble. It's second-rate people who only cling on to you when you're doing well, who don't stand by you. And I think I can honestly say, when I came out, that only four people fell into the category that category because when I held my Christmas party, we had a 93% acceptance. It was the biggest turnout the year after that we've ever, ever had. So my friends wanted to place on record very clearly, not least Margaret Thatcher, who took me to the Ritz, took Mary and myself to the Ritz with Dennis and didn't have our corner table. She took the center table. She said, right, we'll let them know. <laughs> How on earth did you get to know Billy Connolly? Uh, many years ago, I spoke at Glasgow University for the Conservative Party uh, with uh, Michael Heseltine, uh, uh, that, uh, supporting Her Majesty's government. Uh, we lost by 617 votes to 11. Um, Mr. Yes, it wasn't a, a, I can't pretend it was one of the great evenings in my life where I felt oratory actually swayed the audience. But let me tell you something about that meeting, Matt, and modern politics. When the president of the union stood up and thanked us both for coming, we received a standing ovation. Wow. They hadn't come just to be rude to us. The Glasgow University people had come to hear the argument and, and they voted against us. But they appreciated that we'd flown up to Glasgow to the union and spoken and taken it on the nose. And the, uh, the speaker on the other side was John Smith. Wow. Uh, and, and we remained friends for the rest of our lives. I really really think he would have made a very fine premise, very fine man. We remained friends for the rest of my life. So when I was electioneering uh, at one particular election, he was in hospital having, having had a heart attack. And uh, I went in to see him. I, I rang Matron and said, could you ask Mr. Smith if it would be all right to come and see him? You might think it's appropriate. So uh, he, John said, in, in. So in I go and sat on the end of the bed. And I said, listen, Gary. <laughs> Listen carefully, I have selected two young men to be in the business. He was then Shadow Secretary of State for business. I've stolen the best two, he said. And you better keep your eye on them because they're going to cause you trouble. Thank you, John, I said. Are you going to tell me their names? Yes, he said. They're Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. 
They are my two people in my department. So he'd spotted them. He'd spotted them all those years back and put them in his department. He was a pretty cool Jude, that one. And I liked him too. He was a very straight, decent man. Uh, you could discuss things that you disagreed about. You didn't shout at each other. Uh, you waded up and sometimes you said, yes, I'm going to reconsider that. And he'd say, yes, I better reconsider. A very fine man. Very lost for politics. And, and is that how you met Billy Connolly through John Smith? Uh, well, Billy Connolly, uh, I was up in Edinburgh, uh, up in Glasgow at the time and met him then. He was doing something at the university and we became friends. I, 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 I can't say we're the same when it comes to the way we live. He said to me when I was speaking in uh, Sydney, he rang up and said, Jeffrey, uh, let's have dinner. I said, what a lovely idea. Billy. Uh, he said, I'm on stage. Straight afterwards, you and I can have dinner. I, I didn't realize that when Mr. Connolly goes on stage, he comes off when he feels like it. It may say in the program, Mr. Connolly will come on stage and leave at eight o'clock and leave at nine. Mr. Connolly is quite likely to leave at midnight if he's enjoying himself. And he was enjoying himself with this raucous Sydney crowd. So we ended up having breakfast together. <laughs> ridiculous. But what a, what a talent. What a talent. His latest book is superb and deserves to be number one on the bestsellers list. It's a remarkable talent. What, what Billy has, which I admire so much, is the ability to see something we all see but don't see. And then to tell you about it and think, oh yes, I saw that. I just didn't articulate it. He has, it's an amazing gift. Uh, he's a very, very rare and very special man. And I suppose that's something as a storyteller yourself that you value. I mean, do, do you think as an author you can learn from people like Billy Connolly, from stand-up? You can learn from everybody. You can learn from everybody. If you, anybody you meet in life, you'll learn something if you have your eyes open. My mother used to say, you don't learn anything when you're talking. I deliberately didn't talk then. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> in the hope of learning something. Silent mode. <laughs> You mentioned your, your, your parties earlier. One thing I've always wanted to ask you about was your uh, famous or perhaps infamous shepherd's pie and, and champagne parties. Which... What's infamous about champagne and shepherd's pie, you well, Just because <laughs> you, you're not invited, well, that's it's infamous. <laughs> it just sounds like they're two of my favourite things. So it sounds ah. like a really good combination. Oh, well, that's the same. I, Mary always wanted, when we started them 40 years ago, I think Mary felt the shepherd's pie was wrong. And I said, heartache, I will tell you now, men will cross the earth for shepherd's pie. They will queue for shepherd's pie. In fact, Tom King, Her Majesty's Secretary of State for Defense, it was two night party in those days. He and his bodyguards, four of them, came two nights running. Um, and <laughs> I said to the bodyguard, uh, I hate to point this out to you, but the Secretary of State came yesterday. He said, yes. He does love shepherd's pie. He never gets it at home. He, he, he just came in and had his shepherd's pie and went. So there's a group of men like you and me, Matt, who love shepherd's pie. It's the best. I think it's the best dinner you can have. What a combination. Well, yeah. But it's a kind of, it's a mixture of proper homely food. Yes. And then a, a bit of decadence on the side. Yes. That's what we try. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got a problem too because you, you don't know about it. You're not invited and you never will. 
Uh, if you leave the party, you get a cheddar cheese, because I come from Western Supermare. You're given a cheddar cheese. And I can assure you, the trouble we're having this year with having to cancel the party is the amount of people are ringing saying, you know what, my cheddar cheese. And the cheddar cheese is the best. My cheddar cheese comes from a firm in, in cheddar, just outside cheddar. And that's another thing, they queue for the cheddar cheese. So if people listening to this want to experience the, the cheddar that you would get at a Jeffrey Archer party, what is the brand that you use? It comes from Lie Cross. Its official name is, I'm asking Alison, who takes care of my life? It is Lie Cross Farm. Oh, it's Lie Cross Farm. L-Y-E, Lie Cross Farm near Cheddar. And actually, uh, you can get it at Searsis. You can get it at other places. Uh, but uh, uh, we don't let these secrets out easily, Matt, because it's very special indeed. In fact, I had someone gave me a cheddar cheese the other day and said, I'm, You're locked down, Jeffrey. I'm sending you a cheddar cheese. It was all It was seven out of ten. I mean, I told them it was wonderful. It was seven out of ten. My Lie Cross, they make a cheese. They do, uh, they do mild, medium, strong. I recommend, if you're a lover of Jesus, cheddar cheese, I recommend the medium. You've got to be a tough guy to take the strong. And you need a good red wine with it. You need your cheese, fresh bed baked that day, and red wine. What a wonderful combination. I think people at home can recreate this. They can listen to this show and, and have some lie cheddar. And, and what red wine would you recommend going with the... With the well, I'm not a great... I don't have a great knowledge of wine. I leave that to Mary. She uh, is, but, and we're, but again, we're very lucky. I've always said human beings are important. We have uh, in our village, the man who won the best, Noel Young, won the best small mine, <clears throat> wine merchant in Great Britain. So I have always believed, take advice. So off I go to see I go to see Noel and I say, Noel, I'm having my meal tonight. We'll need cheddar cheese, fresh bread. What do you think? And he'll say, I've just got a chillian in. I tried last week. You'll love it, Jeffrey. And I don't say, well, I'm not really a French man or a California. I do as I'm told. I take the chillian home. And he's always right. I mean, he's a superb wine merchant. Um, he so I say, I've got this idiot Matt coming to dinner with me. And he thinks he knows about wine. What shall we give him? And he says, oh, yes, I know, Matt. We'll give him a, a Beaujolais Nouveau. <laughs> so he, I leave it to him, Matt. I leave him to choose for me. Well, this is good. People can, people can just in time for Christmas, perhaps stock up on some lye uh, cheddar and uh, some chili. Lye cross. Lye cross cheddar, forgive me. Um, you talked recently about, well, fairly recently, about getting prostate cancer and, and its effects yes. on you. Yeah. Um, you know, men don't often talk about their medical ailments when it relates to certain parts of their body and the effects on it. Did you feel a, a responsibility having the platform you have to... Well, you would if you live with Mary Archer, chairman of Addenbrooke's Hospital, game commander of the British Empire. He said, when the Daily Mail rang up, Geordie Gregg rang up and said, can you give me a page on what a man goes through with prostate cancer? I want the three weeks, Jeffrey. I want what you go through. So they can read what you went through. And then they will, if they've got it, they'll say, well, I've read Jeffrey's article. I know what's going to happen. And Mary said, you must do it. You must write the article. And I did. And uh, uh, thousands of people uh, wrote in and said, oh, I think I'll face it now. I think I'll. 
some stupid men, and there are a lot of stupid men about. Oh no, I haven't got prostate cancer. I don't need to be tested. I would say to every man watching this show, have a blood test. See if you've got it. The odds are that you haven't. There's 75, 80% you haven't got it. But if you have, for God's sake, have the operation. So I had my test and my PSA had risen to, I think it was uh, 6.2. I had a friend who had PSA of 50 and didn't go in to be operated, the complete idiot. By the way, we're talking about a man who I admire and think highly of. And so I beat him up and pushed him in the Fleming Hospital. Whereas Mary said, once it reached 6.2, she said, in. And I went into hospital, got in the queue, waited eight weeks, had it all done. It's all been scraped out. I had three very unpleasant weeks. And I came out of being on the floor, not fun. Uh, it wasn't great. And you're quite right. You don't feel like a man. You feel like a complete gnome. But three weeks later, I was fine. So I would say to anybody watching this, if you're 55 or above, and you haven't even thought about it, take the blood test and discover if you've got prostate. Please, I beg you. And if you haven't, whoopee. But if you have, get on with the operation. It's such an important thing. And men... Well, what about you? What age are you? I'm 37. Oh, no, you, need, you shouldn't, in theory, be bothering yet. But you should, 10 years' time, you should be taking the test. I will. I always go to the doctor if I'm ill. I don't muck about. Yeah. I think it's yeah. important. Um, we're almost coming to the end of our time now. I just wanted to ask you, Jeffrey, it, you ha you've been such a big public figure for, for so long. And the public's relationship with you has, has probably changed in that time. I mean, do you, do you feel like you have a handle on how you're seen by the people of Britain? You have no handle on that. They make their own decisions. They've been very kind to me over the years with buying millions of books and the kind things they say. If you saw our emails every morning, you would, you know, it's a delight and a privilege and a pleasure. I've been very, very lucky, very, very privileged. And it's a simple gift, telling a story, and it is a God-given gift. It's a simple gift. Once upon a time, and off you go and pray. I was up at six o'clock this morning, once upon a time, off you go and pray. And I've been very lucky, very lucky indeed, that millions of people have read the books. I confess that Cain and Abel changed my whole life. I mean, I, I, I don't pretend that it was going quite well then, but Cain and Abel just... I mean, it sold a million books in the first week. I've been read by 100 million people. I haven't had to work since. That's 44 years ago. I haven't had to work. But I love work. I love hard work. But that and my charity auctioneering, that's my hobby, uh, keeps me going. In fact, the one thing I've missed during coronavirus is not being able to do any charity auctions. They're all piling up for next year. They're all writing to me saying, will you be available in October next year? And I'm saying, one, I hope I'll be alive. And two, I hope this bloody thing will have gone away <laughs> it must have, in a way you've had a dual life one as a as a best-selling author and and another life a parallel life as a politician and then obviously went through all the the stress of going to prison and the the effect on your maybe the public perception about you know around you with that Did, what was it like to kind of be cast almost as a pantomime villain during that period well not nice but the british people i will tell you something about the british people matt they're forgiving and understanding, and they allow you to fight your way back. And God bless them for that. There will always be a small group of unpleasant people who don't allow you to fight back. So be it. To hell with them. Uh, I'm grateful to all those who've allowed it. I mean, because they told me when I left prison, the book sales would go down. It went up. So I'm 
I'm not complaining. No such thing as bad publicity, perhaps? No, that's not true. Not true. There could be offences you were involved in that are totally unacceptable. For example, the way you treat women or rape, any of that, being a paedophile, those, there's no way back from that. No way back. There shouldn't be. Uh, sadly, we say that sadly, uh, because it's just terrible, terrible. Uh, but no, the British people are much more. And with the books, I read the Clifton Chronicles. I started reading the Clifton Chronicles a few years ago on holiday, and I thought it was a great idea to effectively say these are going to be a, a set of five, and it ended up being a set of seven. And it was a real thrill. Almost like it was like the, the, the literary equivalent of a box set to be able to get through and know that there was more coming. You're doing this now with uh, William Warwick. Do you have a plan for the next few books? Is, is this going to be one well, or two or three? Well, they're all individual books. Each one of them is an individual book. The first one, Nothing Ventured, was when he's a constable and he's dealing with art fraud. He comes in, he's made a young detective and is put into the art fraud squad. They're individual books. The second book, the one uh, hidden in plain sight and, and uh, what a thrill it was to see it go to number one this morning. I mean, it's such a thrill. I still get that terrific thrill. I touched my phone and there it was at number one. A real thrill. That's about drugs. He's promoted to detective sergeant. The third book, which I wrote during coronavirus, is hidden, is uh, uh, Turn a Blind Eye, and that's about police corruption. And I'm going to move on to fourth book, which uh, will be Murder. He will go promoted. He will go uh, constable, detective constable, detective sergeant, detective inspector, Detective, he'll mow all the way up. And if I live long enough, Matt, he will become commissioner of police. You can read each book, it doesn't matter which one you pick up, but you can read each book as their individual murder, whatever it might be. But he will go from being a constable on the beat and he will end his life as commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. So that was the, that was the big idea. When you say, what was the idea? That was the concept that I had. I'm going to take this kid out of school, out of university, and I'm going to take you through his career. And invited a very distinguished policeman, um, Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, to be my chief researcher, and the wonderful uh, uh, Michelle Roycroft, Detective Sergeant Michelle Roycroft, being in, in the drug squad and the murder squad, so that I didn't make any mistakes. So that it, when you read about, in this book, when you read about marijuana, and I say that, Five million people on marijuana. Cocaine and crack cocaine, half a million people on cocaine and crack cocaine. Quarter of a million people on heroin. So I had, I think, I, I've got to get the figures right, I said, otherwise, and I got the figures right. It was more fun when they told you anecdotal stories about what had happened. Sometimes just a sentence could become five pages. I, the, the, the head of the drug squad said to me, What I had this man, I mean, I had this man who, he was a burglar, very successful burglar. They used to send me a Harrods hamper every Christmas. I see you light up because you know that's the first five pages of the book. That's all he said. So the first five pages of the book is the whole team sitting around the table, and there's this Harrods hamper in the middle of the table, and they can't touch it. They can't go anywhere near it. It has to be sent down for fingerprints. All the stuff has to be taken away and given to charity. But he was still sending it every year with the message, better luck next time. 
And I said to Paul, who's was head of head of the drug squad, uh, lovely that I know five million people uh, take marijuana. Hamper story is human. The hamper story is you on your daily job cursing away at this man. And I said, uh, did you get him? And he said, yes, he's in prison. <laughs> so yes, human contact is a very important thing in research. Very important. It's interesting that the next book's about police corruption because in reading parts of Hidden in Plain Sight, it reminded me a bit of Line of Duty. I don't know if you've seen that, the Jed Mercurio. I love Line of Duty. I think it's, one of, it's a great television show. I'll wait for the next series. I love it. I wonder if that is kind of, I mean, I suppose you're influenced by all sorts of things, the, the anecdotes that people give you, just ideas that you see in, you know, in other walks of life. I wonder if a, a bit of line of duty has come into the books. Wait, I, last night I was watching Sherlock Holmes. How do you know what gets into your mind and sticks there? And how his brain works, or how Conan Doyle's brains works, and how he went about his solving. I'm looking, 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 looking all the time, reading, reading, reading all the time and hoping to learn, learn, learn all the time. You may get a bit of that, and a bit of this, and a bit of that, and then uh, the, uh, Paul will say, you can't do that in drugs, Jeffrey, it doesn't work, whatever it might be. But in the end, you've got to weave the story. You've got to actually put the words on paper and hope that the reader will say, wow, I'm enjoying this. And you, you write these out in longhand. You don't you do these on a laptop or a computer. I can't, I, I can't turn the I, Mary says I can turn the light on, but that's about it. No, I have now. This machine I'm talking into belongs to Alison, my personal assistant. She turned it on this morning. She got you on the screen. I'm talking to you. When you say goodbye, which I hope will be fairly soon because I'm getting <laughs> bored with you, she will come across and she will turn the machine off because I can't. Do you keep all those written manuscripts or do they go in the recital? Mary does. She, she puts them all. In fact, very, very great, being serious for a moment. Very, very great honour. Uh, nine months ago, a year ago, I had a, a letter from the Bodleian at Oxford saying, would it be possible to have the first edition in a nibble? And I said, this is a great honour. I will bring it. And Mary had, had put it all in a box. She, I said, where is it? Where? Help! She knew exactly where it was. And we went and took the box, took it down to Oxford and handed it over to the Bodleian. A little ceremony when they received it. And every word handwritten, uh, and I was very touched that they wanted a, a, a what I would call first draft and written in an able. That is very, uh, very cool. How frustrating is it for you when you when you put so much effort, a, a literally handwritten effort, into all these books? When you know the the, the occasional conspiracy theory services will be saying, "Oh, Jeffrey Archer doesn't write it himself; his his wife writes it, or he pays other people to write it." Well. Only a very stupid person would say his wife writes it because she's a scientist and she couldn't weave a tale in that way. Only very stupid people would say someone else writes it because where are those people? and Why aren't they being paid a million pounds for their work? Uh, those are jealous, stupid people. And when you see them, Matt, if you're one of them, look in the mirror and say, I'm a jealous, stupid person. No. Graham Greene once wrote, wonderfully, the more famous you become and the more you're read, the more they'll, other someone will say someone else is writing. I write every word. And one of the joys of keeping all of the handwritten proofs is that no one can, only a complete idiot or someone who is totally prejudiced would even dare to mention it. 
But this is something even even Shakespeare had to bear. Who? <laughs> no, no, I only say that because I got a statue of him down there in front of him. Uh, oh, I want you to forget about Shakespeare, young man. Yes, of course, he was the greatest writer that has ever lived, ever lived. What a storyteller. If you didn't know the end of Romeo and Juliet, wow, wouldn't you be sure? The problem with all his plays is you know the end. So you pop along to the National Theatre to see your Macbeth, to see your Richard II, to watch A Midsummer Night's Dream, but you know the end. I have said, I want some, someone said, what would you like? I said, I'd like all my knowledge of Shakespeare, wiped out of my head in one go. I wouldn't even know he existed. And I could go and see these plays. People forget he's not only the greatest writer our nation has ever produced, he's the greatest storyteller our nation has ever produced. And do you have any tips then for, for when uh, life returns to normal? Are there, are there any budding playwrights? Are there any, are there any plays Please that you want to see? No. This is the chance to write. You're locked down. You're made to stay at home. Don't wait to come out of it and then decide. Get writing now. You'll never have a better chance. And, and what, what plays are you looking for? Are there, are there new plays out there? I mean, I, I wonder, if you, have you seen any of the James Graham plays, the political ones? Oh, he's, he's brilliant, right? In them all. In every one of them. He's a brilliant writer. He's one of our most exciting young writers. His, uh, his story of, of the House of Commons, uh, the Whip's office in the House of Commons, quite brilliant. He's a, a wonderful writer and a, a huge future talent for our country. Yes, yes, I, I try to see all the best people. I try to, I, I, when the theatre was, I, I'm in the theatre twice a week when it's there, twice a week. Yes, I've seen everything Mr. Graham's done. And is there, is, there any, is there anyone we may not have heard of that you could, you could tip us off about? Any budding playwrights or novelists you think that the world should know? Well, I always end on this. I say on this because I'm getting quite bored with you. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will end on this by saying, because I get this question a lot, I hugely admire Stefan Zweig. And I think Beware of Pity is a masterpiece. I think not only is he a beautiful writer, He's also a great storyteller, and that's a rare combination. Obviously, Jane Austen had that. There are people who troll about that. There are people who have it. But for me, Stefan Weig is the king, because his non-fiction work, his works on Europe just before Hitler came into power, and when Hitler came into power, devastating. I mean, you could take a page and just read it and think about it. It's so in some ways dense and intense, but it has so much to say to you. And you think, how can you do this for 500 pages, Mr. Zweig? You don't understand, and he can, because he's a genius. So those of you out there who have not read Stefan Zweig, I think he's very special. Well, you've given us some great tips there, Jeffrey, for, for good cheese and for, for, <laughs> and for good books. So, well, yes, uh, thank you good very cheese, much. get your own wine and read Stefan Zweig, you'll have a good Christmas. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, Jeffrey Archer. I think that's the first time I've been called a layabout by a guest or been told that I'm boring the person I've interviewed quite so often. I'm sure plenty of them have thought it, but it's the first time it's been given voice. But it was, there's so much there. And, and it, obviously, the Malcolm Rifkind interview was, was, was different because Malcolm Rifkind has, has led a different life. And it's interesting that those two keep in touch because I had a very similar feeling afterwards that an hour just isn't enough. You kind of, 
They've got so much to say about so many things. You almost need to do a Jeffrey Archer series or a, or a Malcolm Rifkin series. But um, that was so enjoyable to record. And I, I hope it was a pleasure for you to, to listen to as well. Um, I hope you are keeping well wherever you are. Um, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. You can buy Hidden in Plain Sight, which is now out, Jeffrey's new book. You can buy my book, Politically Homeless, which is on sale. And thank you to so many of you that have bought it and the many of you that have left lovely reviews of it. Um, thank you very much. And of course, as I always ask, or as I always try to remember to ask, you can leave a review for this podcast on iTunes, which helps other people find it. So if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave uh, a review because... It helps the show. So thank you very much. And, and I do mean it. I hope you are keeping well. Um, it's always difficult when the nights draw in, when it feels like the news is getting increasingly bleak. So I hope this podcast um, helps just take you out of that for an hour or so. A bit of escapism helps us all, I find. Um, and a bit of just, you know, politics that isn't all about Brexit and coronavirus is, uh, I think... Um, perhaps a welcome a welcome diversion from where we find ourselves at the moment so i have some brilliant guests lined up in the coming weeks and months which are very exciting um i never like to announce them in advance just in case i don't like to jinx it but some absolutely brilliant guests coming up so there we are uh, that's this for another week uh I do hope you're well. Take care of yourself. I'm just sort of ending like Jerry Springer now. Take care of yourselves and each other. Ta-ra. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 